Well, good morning. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, all right. You can, you can talk back to me. My name's Steve. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. I'm the assistant pastor, and if it's your first time visiting with us, I'd love to meet you afterwards, and you might not know, but we're in the middle of a series on Genesis. And uh, since we're not doing children's church, we're starting off each sermon with just a little something uh, geared towards the kids so that they can uh, kind of ponder throughout the week and, and talk with their parents. And uh, it's a little bit slim pickings out here this morning, kids-wise. Where'd everybody go? It's that boring? It's been that terrible? All right. Well, I'm going to do it anyway because I prepared a little story. So we're, we're past the halfway mark between last Christmas and this Christmas. Did you guys know that? You've been keeping track, counting down the days? Anybody love Christmas? Anybody love getting Christmas presents? It's not the point, but do you like getting Christmas presents? Okay. Have you started working on your Christmas presents list yet? There's only like five more months. You might want to get going. So let me, let me tell you a story from my childhood to spare you some of the pain that I have endured, okay? Have you ever maybe seen the closet that your parents keep the presents in? And when they're not really paying attention, you think to yourself, maybe I could just go and like shake it and smell it and maybe open it a little. Well, one year, uh, I really wanted a bike. And my dad took our giant van that he never drove to get a can of paint from the hardware store a couple of weeks before Christmas. And so I, being wily coyote, knew what was going on. And so I went and, and spied out the van later that day, and there was the bike that I had wanted, which is great. I highly recommend snooping on, on presents ahead of time. It was really, really fun. The problem, my problem, is that I have a big mouth, and so I couldn't keep that a secret. So I was telling my uncles at Christmas Eve, and then next thing you know, I'm telling my dad, and then pretty soon he's making me tell my mom, and I ended up having to pay for the bike myself because she was not happy that I ruined the surprise. So the lesson there is, don't tell your parents if you snoop on your presents, okay? But it's that waiting, right? Like you know that there's a good thing coming, and somehow the waiting just seems exhausting. So this week, maybe you can start working on your Christmas lists. And as you're doing, I want you to talk to your parents about what it means to wait for something good, to know that it's coming. And yet, like Houston just said, it's summer, how can we really believe that there are Christmas presents that are going to come at some point in the future? That's what I want you to think about this week, all right? Let me read our passage from Genesis and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the Old Testament reading. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider what it means to have hope in the midst of hopelessness, I ask that we would be drawn near to you, that your spirit would be given over to us, that as we come to your table later this morning, that we would be fed with Jesus, that our hearts and our souls would be warmed to him, and that even in the bleakness of this world and perhaps of our own lives, that we would have faith to trust that you are building a future in which all things will be changed. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chris Arnade is a photographer in New York City, and he's been working on a project called The Faces of Addiction. And he basically has all but moved into the neighborhood of Hunts Point in the Bronx and has started following around and documenting the lives of the different addicts that he meets there. But he's been doing much more than, than taking pictures because he's really taken up residence in the lives of these heroin users as they go about their day, going from, from getting high to crashing to searching out to exchanging their bodies for more drugs or for cash to buy drugs. And the thing that I find fascinating about Chris is that as he's been documenting the lives of these people, he's been the one who's been changing. He entered Hunt's Point as a lapsed Catholic who referred to himself as an atheist. And yet he started following around people like Michael and Sarah and Sonia and Eric. And as he would take photographs and talk with them, he realized every single one of these people that he was meeting, who just had these deplorable lives, absolutely believed in Jesus. Sonia and Eric have a picture of the Last Supper that they take with them wherever they move. Sometimes it's just put up beneath a bridge. Other times it's in the midst of the garbage of a crack house. Michael has a rosary that he takes with him everywhere he goes. Takesha has a small cross that she claims keeps her safe as she climbs in and out of strangers' cars. As Chris would document their living quarters, which are just absolutely decimated, he would spy Bibles in the midst of needles and other paraphernalia and, and refuse. And his first reaction to all this was that of all the people in the world who should not believe in God, it was these people that he was meeting. But when he asked Michael about his rosary, Michael said, it's a reminder to me that there is something out there that is better than all of this. So Chris now refers to himself as a fallen atheist. He's finding himself being pushed back onto the pathway of faith, and he says this, soon I saw my atheism for what it is, an intellectual luxury for those who have done well. Now, whether that's an accurate sentiment or, or whether it's fair to level at atheism in general is not for me to say, and nor is it really the point. 
But what Chris is experiencing is the mysterious tension of faith and hope in the midst of hopelessness, a belief that despite all signs to the contrary, there could be something better out there. There could be an entirely different future waiting. As we continue our narrative of Abraham and Sarah, this is the place that we find them, a place of trying to cling to hope in the midst of hopelessness. And it seems like there's a good deal of laughter happening in these passages. But as we all know from experience, laughter isn't always due to happiness. There's a reason that we sometimes refer to it as cracking up. It's a complex response to what can often seem like an absurd, meaningless existence. So this morning, I would like us to start with a look at laughter, then ask a crucial question and end with the parameters of the promise. As you can see in your bulletin, we've pieced together a few different chapters to try to tie up this storyline of, of Abraham and Sarah. And so for time's sake, we've had to leave some things out. But if we were to actually go through the entire narrative of these four chapters, it would actually serve to highlight that with all these seeming sidetracks from the story of Abraham and Sarah having a child, that it would actually highlight the anguish that they're feeling, that Abraham and Sarah are in the midst of this weight that seems to just draw out eternally. Last week, we saw that Abraham was done with silently following along. He had some questions for God and he needed assurances, but he had faith. And God reconfirmed the promises that he made to Abraham, that Abraham would have a son, that the land that was promised would be inherited by his descendants. And Abraham believed God. But things don't actually change. It's like the last episode of season eight of Seinfeld. Seinfeld's back. Love Seinfeld. If you, if you are a big fan, you already know which episode I'm talking about. It's the Summer of George. So here's George Costanza. If you've never watched the show, George Costanza is a loser's loser. The guy cannot keep a job, a woman, high hopes for the future. Everything just goes wrong for this guy. And so in the Summer of George episode, he's just been let go from the New York Yankees, which is not shocking because he thought he was going to get fired from day one. But as he's sitting there at the cafe with Jerry... He says, he opens his mail and he says, Jerry, I I got a severance check for three months of pay. And he's so excited and George gets this vision of a future him that could be totally different. I'm really going to do something with these three months, Jerry, he says. I'm going to read a book from beginning to end in that order. This is going to be my time, time time to taste the fruits and let the juices drip down my chin. I proclaim this the summer of George. Well, what happens? He has to take some decompression time. And he ends up spending the entire summer in a reclining chair with a fridge built right into the side of it. (laughs) So later in the episode, after he's atrophied from such severe inactivity, that when he slips on some stairs, he, he goes to the hospital and the doctor says that only with luck and an incredible amount of hard work will he be able to even walk again. And so, of course, Jerry and Kramer and Elaine just leave him in the hospital And you can hear him murmuring at the end of the episode, this was supposed to be the summer of George. The summer of George. Guys, just last week, we looked at one of the most beautiful stories of faith in the Scripture. We saw how trusting God is actually the way that we are made right with God. It was as if Abraham was proclaiming, I declare this the summer of faith. But Abraham and Sarah just keep wandering through the desert. And eventually, Sarah gets the crackerjack idea. We don't have it printed here in our bulletin, but in this storyline, Sarah decides, you know what? Abraham could be the father of a great nation. It's just not going to be through me. 
So he should go with my handmaiden. And so in this bizarre description of patriarchal culture in which the main thing, the only thing that mattered was the man having a son to carry on the family line, Abraham goes in to Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, and gets her pregnant. And then God comes along and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham falls on his face and he worships. And then God completely jumps the shark. He says, by the way, Sarah is the one who will give you the son that I promised. She will be the mother of nations. Kings will come from her. And Abraham falls over laughing. He's literally cracking up with what is probably a mixture of bitterness, insanity, and mockery. He's thinking, really? I'm 100 years old and she's 90. We might have missed the window on that one. Make no mistake, this is not a response of happiness and faith. It is a response of complete exhaustion with what appears to be the insanity of God. Abraham simply can't hear these kinds of promises again. He's wasted most of his life looking toward their fulfillment, and it's just not happening. 90-year-old women don't get pregnant. It's not unlikely. It's impossible. But a chapter later, as you can see, we've kind of spliced right into the middle of another story. God appears to Abraham again in a very strange story where these three men come up to Abraham's encampment and meet with him. And we're told that one of them, strangely, is, is a theophany. It's a revelation of God. And so here they all are eating lunch. And God says, I'm going to be back around this time next year. And Sarah will have had a son. And if this were a stage play, you can see Abraham and the three dudes over here eating lunch, and Sarah's right over here, you know, hiding behind the tent, and she's listening. She's listening to everything that they're saying. She's being really quiet until she hears someone say, I've done it. Pigs really can fly. And then she starts laughing, and she loses it, and she thinks to herself, my situation isn't closed for the afternoon. This this is over. This is closed up shop. This is the windows are boarded, the doors are bolted. Menopause has already come and gone. I can't have a child. I'm going to have a son? Ha! And so God says to Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? Is there anything too hard for Yahweh? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah says, I wasn't laughing. And God says, Yeah, you were. I have a professor that says that that story right there is how you can tell what you think about God. As you read that story, if you think that God is responding to Sarah saying, yes, you were, and he's super angry, then you know how you conceive of God. But if you can see God laughing along with Sarah, just like a parent laughs when a kid is laughing at an adult joke that they don't really get, that's how you conceive of God's happiness. You see, much like Abraham, Sarah's laughter was not actually out of joy. It was laced with bitterness and the insanity that comes after years and years of failure because women in this culture were valued most directly by their ability to give an heir, a male heir. And as insane as that may seem to us, as horrible as that may seem to us, this was her entire identity. Everything that she had going for her was based on this. The justification for her life was that she bear a son for Abraham, and for years she hadn't been able to do it. That's not the sort of thing that you want to talk about. It's the sort of thing you want to forget. You don't want someone coming along to you and saying, oh, don't worry, things will work out, because they don't work out. They don't work out. Postmenopausal women don't have babies. But then we get to chapter 21. 
And basically with no fanfare, almost no introduction at all, we're just told that the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And he did for her as he had promised. And she gets pregnant and gives Abraham a son at the very time God had promised. And the narrator keeps repeating, as God said, as God promised, over and over so we get the point. God keeps his word. So Sarah and Abraham named their son Laffy McLafferson. In, in Hebrew, it sounds like Isaac, but translated, it just means Laffy. Because Sarah says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this, it's, it's a rough translation, but what she's getting at is everyone who hears about this is going to laugh with me and at me and near me. Everyone's laughing. I mean, close your eyes for a second. Picture a 90-year-old woman having a child. Come on. I mean, really? What we see is that God gets the last laugh. You can open your eyes if you want. You don't have to keep picturing a 90-year-old woman having a child. And when God laughs last, he laughs best, and he doesn't keep the laughter to himself. He spreads it around, and everyone starts laughing. And it's an incredibly happy ending to a very long story. And the happy ending lasts for about three minutes. Because in the very next chapter, which I don't think we're going to look at together, we see that the other son that Abraham had starts laughing at Isaac. He pokes Mama Bear and she gets mad and the family has to split. Before we move on, I would like to note that God moves forward with his plan regardless of the current state of Abraham and Sarah's faith. We were already told that Abraham believed God and it was justified to him as righteousness. And here we see that they are both losing their marbles before Isaac finally comes along, and God does it anyway. And there's actually a crucial question buried within this narrative, and it's in answer to this question that laughter can turn from an insane response to an absurd world into a joyful response to a faithful God. And the question is the one that God asks Abraham when Sarah was losing it in the tent. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And this is the question that gets asked of every subsequent generation in Scripture and all the way down the line through the church right now to us. And it's a question that actually demands an answer. It's not rhetorical. But at least it's a yes or no question. So let's just consider our options. Let's say the answer is yes, that there are things that are too difficult for God. If that's the case, that there, that there are some things that God just can't manage, that the rules of reality are simply too rigid, then belief in anything is as absurd as heroin addicts praying for a better life with a needle still stuck in their arm. All of our laughter would have to be laughter of fear and insanity in an absurd, meaningless world. Because if there are things that are too hard for God, then what? He's not actually God. That's just Batman. It's a futile, though heroic, fight against the evil of Gotham. But it's a fight that will ultimately fail because everyone in Gotham is dead and Batman can't bring people back to life. Now, it would be super adult and modern and open-minded if our narrator would just allow us to kind of make up our own mind about this question, to not stack the deck in a particular direction. But that's not the case at all. The author of Genesis has been making a very strong case from the very beginning. It's been about one thing convincing the readers that Yahweh is God. The God who reveals himself to people like Abraham and later to his descendants is the God of the entire universe. That he has been about accomplishing his plan and there is nothing too difficult for him to accomplish. 
The very first thing we found out about this God is that he created everything there is out of nothing. There was just him and non-existence until he spoke things out, and with just a word, he brings the universe to life. This isn't a guy cruising around the galaxy looking for something with potential. The God of Scripture does not deal with potential. He deals in dust, darkness, and death, and he gives children to 90-year-old women. Later on, he gives children to prostitutes. He gives them to foreigners, and maybe he gives children to virgins. Do you see that the entire storyline of Scripture is based on an impossibility? That God has a specific goal and mission in mind for his world, and yet he created willful creatures and put them at the center of that plan? How is God going to accomplish his plan when we are constantly going about our own way, oftentimes directly thwarting what he's trying to do? And frankly, look at our track record. We keep fighting for our own way, and it results in bloodshed and turmoil. And the only thing that's gotten more sophisticated with time is our weaponry. So if our answer is that there are things too difficult for God, then we can stop asking questions and just go drink ourselves silly because life is absurd. But if our answer is that God is actually God, that there is nothing too hard for him, then we've got some other questions to answer, like what in the world is going on? Why are there people still stuck in heroin addictions? Why are there child soldiers? Why is there childlessness and poverty and disease throughout the world? And frankly, why stay big picture? Some of you are asking, why can't I find a job? Or why can't my job be more meaningful? Why is my marriage falling apart? And why are the dark places of my heart in such constant disrepair? And honestly, the real question is, God, where are you? This was supposed to be the summer of faith. The summer of faith. Obviously, I'm not going to solve the problem of evil for us this morning. What I can tell you is that I think many of the things that cause us consternation, not simply because they're just horrifying, although that is reason enough, but it, it seems as if God has left the building when we look around the world and see so much horrible things happening and so many horrible things happening in our own lives. But much of that fear and disbelief can actually be cut out if we understand the parameters of the promise. If you remember, God never promised Abraham that he would have a great, happy life. He promised him a son. And initially, he never even told him when that promise would be fulfilled. God promised Abraham two things, a son and land. And yet what we see is that when Abraham dies, he has a son, but he doesn't really have much land. And Abraham could only assume that God would fulfill his promise on this side of death. And he probably assumed that it would happen before Sarah went through menopause. But it wasn't until a year before Isaac was born that God actually gives him a timeline when Abraham and Sarah were already in their 90s. So when God says, you will have nations come out of you, Abraham only gets to see two sons and then he dies. When God tells him the boundary markers of the land that he's going to give him, he has a tomb in a cave and that's it. And it's not until the Davidic kingdom hundreds of years later, that Israel actually has those boundaries, that that promise is actually fulfilled. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're considering becoming a follower of Jesus, I can tell you, we have been made some promises. But somewhere along the line, those promises have been transmuted. Somewhere in our broader culture, Christianity has developed into this set of principles to live by in order to have a happy life. You want a better marriage? Come to Jesus. Having trouble with work? Tell it to Jesus. Are you depressed, overweight, addicted, sad, hungry? 
Just come to Jesus and he'll fix all of your problems. I actually believe that Jesus does have things to say to all of those things and more. I believe that Jesus wants to come and bring healing to the broken places of our lives and our world and that we enge- when we engage with him fully, that we will see change, that we will find flourishing in a way that we'd never thought possible. But so often we look at what our culture tells us is a meaningful, happy life and we say to Jesus, well, that's what I want. You promised me goodness. That's goodness. Give it to me. Well, what really is the promise in the New Testament for followers of Jesus? Well, there's an overwhelming nexus of promises that when we kind of boil them down, they kind of pull us back and forth between two directions. And it goes something like this. We're all as dead as Sarah's 90-year-old womb. We're all as empty as the non-existence before creation, but, but through Jesus, we can be made alive, not improved, not have our potential leverage, but actually go from death to life. And that's something that begins the moment we take hold of him in faith, the moment that we are brought into his church through baptism. But following right on the heels of that promise is the promise that persecution is coming, that suffering is interlaced with this new life in a way that really isn't undone until life might be over. This is something that we talked about a bit in our study of Luke but I have no way to explain it other than to say, if the king of the kingdom experiences suffering and death, what more could his followers hope for? But, but, beyond that, beyond just being promised new life and then being promised suffering and persecution, mixed up in that dual promise is the promise that one day, one day all things will be remade, that all the horrible, sorrowful things will become untrue and that all things will be reconciled in Christ, that every nation and every tribe will stream to the new heavenly city in worship, in peace, peace with one another and peace with God. You see, what God gave to Abraham and giving him Isaac McLafferson was a first fruit. And we have trouble really understanding that imagery because we no longer live in an agrarian culture, but If you've ever been to a farmer's market right at the beginning of produce season and tasted that first apple or that first tomato, and if you were a farmer, you would know that there's more coming. You could look out and see your crops and know that so much more was going to come. That's what it means to hold on to hope after you have seen God do one small thing and know that it's going to grow from there. So what we are called to as the church is to look at what God has done in Jesus Because even in the midst of a world that seems to be falling apart at the seams, we can look back and see that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. And he's been given, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal, as the first fruits, that we can look at that and know without a shadow of a doubt that God will be remaking all things. And we can have hope in the midst of hopelessness. And God will have the last laugh. And we will all laugh with him. This is the hope of Christianity. It doesn't transport us out of a dark world. It actually plants us even firmer within it and asks us to remain steadfast in hope that God will do what he promised, just as he did for Abraham and Sarah. Let's take hold of that hope as we come to his table. Let's pray together. God, often the darkness of our lives is overwhelming. And it really can feel like we're cracking up when we try to imagine you setting things right. 
And it could be that for years we have prayed and prayed. Some of us perhaps for a child. Some of us for freedom from enslaving sins. Some of us for a spouse or a better relationship with our parents. And it never seems to happen. I ask that you would impress upon us the reality of your promise, that you are setting all things right, that we don't know when those things will finally turn the corner, but we know that we have been made right with you because of what Jesus has done for us. I ask that this would be driven home to our hearts this morning as we come to his table. We ask in his name. Amen.